Before we uh, jump into the message for today, I do want to kind of talk about the new year. Um, certainly, it's very exciting. I don't know how many of you made New Year's resolutions this year. I don't know how many of you already gave up on your New Year's resolution this year. And uh, I read, I wish I would have written down the statistics, but like within the first week, I think it's something like a quarter of all New Year's resolutions have been abandoned. Within the first month, it's like 60% or something like that. But uh, hopefully, if you're, if you're trying to do something new this year, you're still sticking with it. But um, for us this year, I want to take just a moment and kind of recalibrate for 2024. Olivia made a nice slide that says recalibrate for 2024. And just looking forward to what the Lord has for us this year. Um, certainly, a lot of the things that we've traditionally done, we will do again and looking forward to carrying on those traditions but also some new emphases, some new um, themes uh, for this year. One thing that I have been challenging you to do, so it's not new for the new year, but I want to do it more and uh, give it a name. I want to encourage you this year, in 2024, to reach your Jerusalem. To reach your Jerusalem. God has put you right where he wants you. He's sovereign and the situation you are in life, there are people all around you, I'm certain, who do not know the Lord. And the fact of the matter is that as a believer, someone who does know Christ, the responsibility falls on you to tell them. And uh, I think sometimes maybe that might feel like uh, a burden, but really it's a gift. God allows each believer to take part in his work in the world. God allows each believer to take part in taking the message of Christ to the world. I'm sure that there's another way that God could have sent the gospel to the whole world. You know, he could have sent angels to proclaim. He could have spoken in a loud voice from the sky. But in his grace, he's allowing you and me to take the gospel to our neighbors, to our friends, to our family, to our co-workers. We get to be a part of that work. And, and uh, we, we've started this emphasis a few months ago, and I've been trying to uh, make a point to ask, especially those of you who come on Wednesday night, to talk about who in the Lord has put in our path to take the gospel to. And we've, we talked earlier in a sermon, and I can't remember when, sometime this fall, about nature of the propagation of the gospel, if you just reached one person, if you just reached one person with the gospel and trained them up and discipled them, brought them along to the point where they can share their faith with someone else, that kind of exponential growth could turn our community on its head for Christ. And all it takes is committed believers who are willing to go out of their comfort zone, to commit themselves to prayer, asking God to do the work as we go out and to take the good news of Christ to those around us. And listen, if you've put your faith in Christ and you have a Christian testimony, you really have the basic tools that you need to go and tell people about Jesus. Because all witnessing really is, is telling people what Jesus has done for you. So this year, all year, uh, my emphasis for my own life and my emphasis, my challenge to us as a church will be reach your Jerusalem. Uh, don't count on the missionaries that you give money to to do all the gospel work. First of all, it's disobedient 
to God's command. And secondly, you are missing out. You're missing out on the blessing of being part of God's kingdom work. Now, sharing your faith with Christ, it's not always a bed of roses. Sometimes people aren't happy about you confronting them with their sin and their need of Christ. And that can cause some trouble. Sometimes people might think badly of you or think you're strange because of what you believe. But how much better for somebody to think you're weird but you, and you to reach one person. If everybody in your life thought you were, you were a weirdo and disowned you, but one person's eternal soul was saved, would that be worth it to you? I hope so. I hope so. I hope it would be worth it to me. Just thinking about the importance of this message and loving others through it should be enough encouragement for us to reach our Jerusalem. Uh, as far as preaching th- themes, nothing surprising here. We're continuing on with the themes we've had. We're going to continue on through the book of Mark, and that will take us at least to the end of the fiscal year, which for us is October. It might take longer than that, depending on how quickly we can move through the book. But I hope it's been an encouragement to you to see the picture that Mark paints of Jesus Christ and him as uh, a servant who's constantly on the go and constantly serving others and thinking of others, and also the picture that Mark paints of the suffering that Christ endured on our behalf. Um, So we're going to be in Mark in just a moment, and also we're continuing on with our study of the minor prophets, which, to be honest, has already taken longer than I thought it would, but there is so much to uncover. Uh, If you come back tonight, uh, we will be back in the book of Micah, chapter 3. We're going to see what God says about social justice, okay? So there you go. I've I've baited the hook. Now you have to come back tonight and see what God says about social justice because that's what Micah 3 is all about. True biblical justice in societal issues. Um, so that's, that's kind of where we're headed this year. I know there's nothing surprising. I'm not introducing anything new. But I want us to all be on the same page as we move forward for Christ this year. All right, we're going to Mark chapter 5. We're going to finish chapter 5 today. Well, actually not quite. Sort of. We're going to get to the last verse of chapter 5, but we won't be, you'll see. You'll see in just a second. Because what, what we have here in Mark chapter 5 is we have a second instance of this um, literary device known as intercalation. We've seen Mark do this once before where he puts a story inside of another story. The time that we saw Mark do this before, uh, we saw that those things didn't necessarily happen at the same time. This time, these stories are sandwiched together because they actually happened that way. A story begins, something else happens in the middle, and then the first story comes to its conclusion. Uh, We won't have time to look at both stories, so if you're thinking of it like an Oreo cookie, we're going to eat the cookie part today, and then next Sunday morning we'll get to the filling, okay? But they're both good. Regardless of what you think of the Oreos, whether you like the inside or the outside better, both of these stories are quite good but we'll be looking at the outside story today. The theme of the the narrative that we'll be reading this morning is a theme of resurrection. We've been going with Mark, and as he's been detailing Christ's work and his miracles and his ministry, it kind of feels like things have been getting bigger and bigger. Have you noticed? The miracles started kind of small-ish, certainly greater than anything any of us could do, but started small-ish. It's getting bigger and bigger until now. Jesus is commanding the weather and fighting armies of demons and all of that, and it's, it's getting bigger, and really we're reaching sort of a crescendo where Christ is going to do the most powerful thing he could do. He's going to bring somebody back 
from the dead. Popular culture is kind of obsessed with the idea of resurrection. I don't know how many novels you read or how many uh, TV shows or movies you watch or whatever, but uh, I mean, you probably, one in three at least, has a major focus on the theme of resurrection. It is everywhere. It is, a, it is a pervasive theme. And honestly, a lot of times when you see popular culture focused on the idea of resurrection, it's kind of a negative thing. I mean, think of whatever thing you know of that has a storyline of something or someone coming back to life from the dead. It's usually kind of a negative thing. I mean, like, the idea of zombies is so popular in our culture and how many TV shows and comic books and all these things have been written about that idea. And it's something coming back to life and it's like not a good thing, right? And it makes you wonder why our culture is so obsessed with resurrection and why the idea of resurrection in popular culture is often portrayed negatively. Like it's something that shouldn't happen. Things shouldn't come back to life. When in reality, when we think about the biblical idea of resurrection, the unnatural thing is death. Because sin brought about death. God is not the author of that evil. Sin brought death on mankind. What God brings is life. And life more abundantly, the Bible teaches. So here in this story of resurrection, this is not a negative resurrection. This resurrection we'll see is followed by great joy. Remember to whom Mark is writing. Do you remember? We haven't talked about the historical context. in. We haven't been in Mark for almost a month. And then we haven't talked about the historical context for probably six weeks. Do you remember to whom Mark is writing originally this gospel? He's writing it to the believers in Rome under Nero. Probably, in my opinion, the most persecuted believers in history. I mean, just claiming to follow Christ would have you burned alive or cut apart or fill in the blank with all these horrible ways to be tortured and killed just for being a Christian. Not for doing anything out of the ordinary, just for being a Christian. This is what was coming for these people. And most of the people who are reading Mark's uh, gospel for the first time possibly gathered around in the catacombs under Rome, hiding, uh, doing their, their public, their gathered worship in hiding. Almost all of them probably knew somebody who had been killed for the sake of Christ. Somebody who had faced an untimely death. You think about to whom this was originally written, how important is resurrection? Because they're risking their lives for the cause of Christ. And if that's all that there is, if all that there is is struggle and trial and then you die, and that's the end, would it be worth it? See, the the idea of resurrection is so important to the Christian because we don't live for this life or we're not supposed to. We are to live for the life to come. The life to come that Christ is able to give through the power of resurrection. So there you go. You've got a whole sermon before we even read the passage, but you're going to see it's right here. Matthew chapter 5, and we'll begin reading in verse 21. And when Jesus had passed over again by ship unto the other side, much people gathered unto him, and he was nigh unto the sea. 
And behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, he fell at his feet and besought him greatly, saying, My my little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay thy hands on her that she may be healed and she shall live. And Jesus went with him and much people followed him and thronged him. Now we're going to take a moment to skip past the cream of this cookie. But suffice it to say that right here in the middle, there is an interruption. And the interruption we'll come to next week. We just don't have time to cover it today. There's an interruption that delays Jesus. And then we come to verse 35. While he yet spake, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain which said, Thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he saith unto the ruler of the synagogue, Be not afraid, only believe. And he suffered no man to follow him, save Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And he cometh to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and seeth the tumult, and them that wept and wailed greatly. And when he was come in, he saith unto them, Why make ye this ado? And weep. The damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. But when he had put them all out, he taketh the father and the mother of the damsel and them that were with him and entereth in where the damsel was lying. And he took the damsel by the hand and said unto her, Talitha kumi, which is being interpreted, Damsel, I say unto thee, arise. And straightway the damsel arose and walked, for she was of the age of twelve years. And they were astonished with a great astonishment. And he charged them straightly that no man should know it and commanded that something should be given her to eat. Let's ask God's blessing on this passage and then we'll look more closely at it. Father, thank you for that you are the God of life. That you give life, that you give eternal life, that you give life more abundantly as we consider who you are, who Christ is, what he is able to do for us. Would you open our hearts to this truth? Would you change us to live accordingly to what you've revealed to us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we look at this story of resurrection, and it's just so plain to anybody who reads it, what has happened here? Jesus raised a girl, a preteen, from the dead. As we consider this, I want us to think first of the seeker. There is this man, his name is Jairus, and Jairus uh, is an important man. He is an elder in the Capernaum synagogue. In fact, he may be the chief elder by the verbiage that Mark uses here. He's in charge of the Jewish church. That's what the synagogue was. It was the local church, basically, for the Jewish people. And uh, his job wouldn't necessarily have been to do what you think of pastors doing, to, to teach and preach, but he certainly would have been doing the administration of the synagogue and lining up all the teachers and making sure that everything was done uh, as it should be. And Capernaum is a, it's not a huge city, but it's not a small town either. Certainly this would have been a significant synagogue that Jairus is in charge of. And I want us to notice as Jairus comes to Jesus with this request, I want us to notice his humility. Because his humility amongst the story that Mark is telling It kind of sticks out like a sore thumb. Verse 22, 
And behold, there cometh one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name. And when he saw him, when he saw Jesus, he fell at his feet and besought him greatly, saying, My little little daughter uh, is at the point of death. Remember how the Jewish leadership generally viewed Jesus. Did they like him? No. No, actually, already in Mark, we've seen twice where leaders amongst the Jews are already plotting how they can kill Jesus. Already. And we're, we're only in chapter 5 of Mark. And twice we've seen them specifically try to make a plan to kill Jesus because they don't like him. And there's a myriad of reasons why they don't like him. And one of them is he keeps calling them out as being sinners. The most religious people in town. And he tells them that they're sinners. They also take theological issue with him. They don't think anybody should call themselves divine as God is divine as Jesus does. And they also have uh, all kinds of problems with other claims that he makes and they think he's a blasphemer, but really it kind of seems personal. A lot of what the Jewish leaders' issues are with Jesus. They don't like being told that they're wrong. But this man seems to be different. And it doesn't, it's not clear to us at what point Jairus realized that Jesus was the real deal. It's very possible that this trial, Jairus' daughter's illness, is what brought him to the point where nothing else could help. No one else could help. Certainly, Jairus was connected with other you know, Jewish leaders, uh, priests and, and others, you know, all kinds of scribes and doctors of the law, and they may have come and tried to do what they could for this girl, but to no avail, she only got worse and worse. And Jairus hears these stories of a man who can heal the unhealable, who makes the lame walk and the blind see, and he thinks maybe this one can make a difference. And so we see him, and as he approaches Jesus, he doesn't approach with caution. As he approaches Jesus, he falls down at Jesus' feet. Probably most of Jairus' religious friends were not on his side at this point. Really, he may have been abandoning all those that he was surrounded with for the sake of following after and seeking after Christ. And he comes, he falls down at Jesus' feet and we see his humility. We think about the trial that brought Jairus to this point. And I think God does the same today. We've talked many times about the fact that God has a purpose for our trials. And it seems to me the purpose for Jairus' trial here is to bring him to Christ. To bring him to the point where he comes and falls before the Lord in humility and faith. Just this week, I, was, I saw a video of someone online and, and they were talking about how if God is the one who allows us to go through trials, or in their words, if God makes us go through trials so that we have to depend on Him, that kind of sounds like an abusive relationship. And I said, oh, there's a couple of problems with that statement. A couple of problems with this statement. First of all, God is not the author of evil. Sometimes God allows us to endure the evil that we deserve and that we created out of our own sin, but God did not create the evil. The Bible is very clear about that. Secondly, the second problem with 
that idea and the second reason that we can understand these trials this way is that every bad thing that could happen to me, I deserve. In fact, it is only of God's mercies that I'm not consumed, the Bible tells me. Every good thing, every comfort that I have is just grace. Uh, every, every illness that I could face, every trial, every loss that I could face is only a very small taste of what I actually deserve. And if you say, wait, 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 no, wait, that, that's a strong statement. Because the world has been telling me that I deserve uh, love and I deserve um, to be wealthy and I deserve to never be hungry and I deserve this. The world is lying to you. And until you come to the point where you recognize what you deserve, you'll never know Christ. Jairus came. He didn't come accusing Christ. He didn't come complaining. He came and he bowed his knee in humility before Christ. You think about it, if we didn't face trials, we would never know our need of Jesus. And if Jairus wasn't facing this trial, I would wager that he wouldn't be kneeling before Jesus on this day. So Jairus, he comes, we see his humility. We see his humility even in the midst of a trial. I know that there are people in our church who are facing trials. I know for a fact that there are people in this room who are facing trials that are harder than any trial I have ever faced. And, you know, certainly I pray for you. Certainly I sympathize or empathize, whichever one is the one where I haven't experienced it, but I feel for you. But I want you to know that God has a purpose for that trial. And if nothing else, God wants you to draw near to Him. Don't run from Him. Don't be angry at Him. Turn to Christ in the midst of your trial. We also see as we look at Jairus as he comes to Jesus, we don't just see his humility, though that is important. We also see his faith. Verse 23, And he besought him greatly, saying, My little daughter lieth at the point of death. I pray thee, come and lay hands on her. And notice what he says next, that she may be healed and she shall live. Jairus believed that Jesus could do this. That he could heal an unhealable person. Jairus must have believed, at least to some extent, that Jesus was who he said he was. This is faith. In his desperation, Jairus chose to believe in Christ. He believed that if Jesus would lay his hands on his daughter, she would be healed. At this moment, Jairus is putting all his, his eggs in this basket. He knows that his daughter is sick to the point of death, and he chooses to leave her bedside to seek this Christ. Knowing full well he might not be there at her final moments as he goes to find Jesus. True faith is not simply saying that you believe. True faith is trusting in God, is trusting in Christ. And when someone trusts in something, you can see it in the way that they act, the way that they speak, the way that they look at life. Jesus' actions are determined by his belief. This is true faith. 
Within this story, there's a, there's a contrast to Jairus who comes with humility and faith because there are those there who doubt. There are those there who don't believe. Uh, of course, we, we skipped. There's, there's the intercalation here. It's, it's the woman with the issue of blood is the middle story here. But Jesus is delayed, and as he is delayed, the doubters show up with a message. Verse 35, While he yet spake, there came from the ruler of the synagogue's house certain which said, Thy daughter is dead. Why troublest thou the master any further? Of course, these messengers, they're they're bringing devastating news. And their message is this, it's too late. It's too late. Maybe Jesus could have helped when she was still alive. But now there's nothing anyone can do. They didn't believe that Jesus could make a difference anymore. There was a limit to their faith. Well, maybe this, maybe this man could have healed her from her sickness, but certainly he couldn't bring her back from the dead. It's where they draw the line because this is beyond their experience. They have seen people recover from illness before. That would be a miracle within their experience. But they've never seen someone come back from the dead before. Because of this, they say, it's impossible. It's impossible. It's kind of funny to me when, when very scientific-minded, unsaved people read the Bible and they come to miracles like this and they say, it's impossible. Well, how do you know? I've never observed it. Well, it wouldn't be much of a miracle if it was something you saw every day, would it? The fact of the matter is that these people had that same opinion. They had never seen anyone brought back from the dead, so they'd convinced themselves it was not possible. This is the limit of their faith. It kind of makes you think, what's the limit of mine? What have I convinced myself that God cannot do? What have I convinced myself that Jesus cannot do? Have I convinced myself that God can do anything except for save that person. I've told them about Jesus. You know, maybe they're steeped in a false religion. Maybe they're steeped in uh, a a besetting sin, a sin that won't let them go, or or whatever. Or maybe you just don't like them very much and you've decided they're, they're past saving. Well, that means you've put a limit on your faith. You put a limit on what God can do even when He said that His will is that all should come to repentance. All. Or maybe the limit of your faith is a limit of of healing. Have we stopped praying for healing? I think certainly it it is most important to pray about that God's will be done, that people be drawn to Christ. But it is absolutely appropriate to pray for miraculous healing. Listen, listen, Theologically, our church is a cessationist church, which means that we don't believe that the miraculous spiritual gifts are for today. Meaning, I don't believe in faith healers. But I do believe in a God who heals. It's a very different story. It's a very different story. There's no more signs and wonders being done because we have the completed Bible. But God is still a miracle-working God. He never said, I'm not going to heal anymore. He is a God who delights to restore and to heal. It's the same God that we serve is is the Christ who's standing here. I think William Carey was right when he famously said, 
Expect great things from God. Attempt great things for God. How would we live differently if we believed that God could do anything? If your faith was big enough to believe that God can do anything, what would be different about your life? How would the way that we talk about things change? How would the way that we talk about politics or trials or our blessings, how would any of those conversations change if we really believed that God could do anything? How would our witness change if we believed that God could do anything? How would our perseverance change if we believed it? How would our joy change if we believed that God could do anything? How would our anxiety change if we believe that God can do anything? The the problem with these messengers is that there was a limit to their faith. They thought Jesus could do this much, but certainly he can't do this. Imagine what God could do with a congregation who just believed that God can do anything. Jesus' response to this news and this kind of negative message in the next verse here is exactly what I needed to hear. Verse 36, As soon as Jesus heard the word that was spoken, he saith unto the ruler of the synagogue, that's Jairus, Be not afraid, only believe. You ladies are looking for something cool to crochet and hang on your wall. Here it is. This would be a good one to go up on the wall. Be not afraid, only believe. How often I need to hear these words from Christ. My fear shows up in so many ways. Fear of the unknown, fear of failure, fear of man, what people think of me. But if we really believe in God and His promises and His guidance and His leadership and His sustaining, all those fears melt away. Just this morning in in the Young Adult Sunday School class, we were taking a look at Psalm 91. In Psalm 91, David is talking about how he doesn't need to fear because he rests in the Almighty Most High God. That's who's taking care of me. I don't need to fear. I only need to believe. Let me read you a A prayer from the Valley of Vision. O God, most high, most glorious, the thought of Your infinite serenity cheers me. For I am toiling and moiling, troubled and distressed, but You are forever at perfect peace. Your designs cause You no fear or care of unfulfillment. They stand fast as the eternal hills. Your power knows no bond. Your goodness no end. You bring order out of confusion, and my defeats are your victories. The Lord God of unending power reigns. I come to you as a sinner with cares and sorrows to leave every concern entirely to you, every sin calling for Christ's precious blood. Revive deep spirituality in my heart. Let me live near to the great shepherd. Hear his voice. Know its tones. Follow its calls. Keep me from being deceived by causing me to abide in the truth from harm by helping me to walk in the power of the Spirit. Give me greater faith in the eternal truths, burning into me by experience the things I know. Let me never be ashamed of the truth of the Gospel that I may bear its its reproach, vindicate it, see Jesus as its essence, know 
in it the power of the Spirit. Lord, help me, for I am often lukewarm and chill. Unbelief mars my confidence. Sin makes me forget you. Let the weeds that grow in my soul be cut at their roots. Grant me to know that I truly live only when I live to you, that all else is trifling. Your presence alone can make me holy, devout, strong, and happy. Abide in me, gracious God. This anonymous author is writing about what is possible if we would not fear and only believe. And what it looks like to follow Jesus' command, do not fear, only believe. And now as we come to the end of the narrative, we finally get to the crescendo of this story, the resurrection. We see as Jesus approaches this house, uh, there is some premature pouting going on. Verse 38, And he cometh to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and seeth the tumult, and them that wept and wailed greatly. And for what it's worth, during this time period in history, it was extremely common, it was customary actually, for uh, funerals to happen right away after a person passed away because you don't want to wait until the body begins to do unnatural things during this mourning period. So the mourning started right away, even before Jairus gets home. Another thing to note is that it was extremely customary during this time to hire professional mourners to come to a funeral. It, it was very customary to pay people whose whole job was to come and mourn and wail and weep at a funeral of a person they probably didn't even know. It was also very customary to hire at least two musicians. Even the poorest people would hire at least two musicians. However wealthy you were, you would hire more. And all of this is already going on by the time that Jesus and Peter, James, and John and Jairus arrive back at the house. All of this is happening. There's weeping and wailing and there's probably sad uh, kind of they would play off-tone music to indicate their, their, their sorrow. And there are these, uh, these kind of paid mourners there making a big show. And by the way, you, we can be pretty sure that these are paid mourners because in a minute you're going to see them go from weeping to laughing almost instantly. Uh, you'll see that in just a second. We see this kind of this premature pouting because it seemed that nobody believed that Jesus could make a difference. It's possible that everybody at the house knew where Jairus was. Where's the father? Well, he went to get Jesus. Well, she's already dead. There's nothing that can be done. Nobody believed that anything could be done. And then we see Jesus make a puzzling proclamation in verse 39. And when he was come in, he saith unto them, Why make ye this ado and weep? The damsel is not dead, but sleepeth. And they laughed him to scorn. Why did Jesus say this? Uh, nobody really knows for sure, although there certainly are some great guesses about why Jesus is saying she's just sleeping. Uh, she is definitely dead. And I'll tell you, if you go and read this account in Matthew, he uses much clearer language to tell you that this girl was definitely, completely dead. So why is Jesus saying this? Well, there's a lot of theories, and I'll tell you probably the best one is this. Jesus just knew that she wouldn't be dead forever. He already knew what he was going to do. He already knew that if, if the people here are thinking of death as permanent, let me liken this to something that's not permanent. Stop wailing. Stop weeping. She'll wake up. Wake up. She'll come back. Then we see the moment we've all been waiting for, this powerful restoration. Second half of verse 40. But when he had put them all out, okay, get rid of the professional mourners, get rid of all these people. 
He taketh the father and the mother of the damsel and them that were with him. That's three of his disciples. And he entered into where the damsel was lying. And he, he took the damsel by the hand and said unto her, Talitha kumi, which is being interpreted damsel, say unto thee, arise. Why do you get these words Talitha kumi? Because he's speaking in Aramaic. So in the Gospels, all the Greek is just translated right into English. They transliterate the Aramaic because Mark's readers, many of them would not have understood the Aramaic at their, at their first reading, or some of them wouldn't. That's why he interprets it into the Greek for you. So Jesus, he puts the scoffers, he puts the false friends, he puts these false mourners out of the room, and he speaks these powerful words. He says, I say unto thee, arise. And the unimaginable happens. With a simple phrase, not an incantation or some big ceremony, no sacrifices or seances. Jesus just speaks and brings this girl back from the dead. There are many people throughout history, especially over the last two millennia, who have claimed to be who Jesus is. They have claimed messiahship, they've claimed divinity, and there are many religions devoted to such people. But I'll tell you what sets Jesus apart. He had power over death. We see here, he speaks a word, a simple phrase, and conquers death and brings this girl back to life. And I'll tell you something else. All those other false messiahs, they're dead. And when they died, they stayed dead. But our Christ has power over death. He rose from the dead. He lives today. He's not a God of death. He's a God of life. He's a God whose will is to give life to all men. He's a God who will one day raise the dead for all eternity. As John wrote, and we just went through this passage a few weeks ago, in Him, that's Christ, was life. And this life was the light of men. See, Jesus is the giver of life, not just for one daughter of one Jewish official. Jesus is the giver of life for all who would believe. And then one last note here. After the powerful rest restoration, we see the practical provisions. Verse 42, Straightway the damsel arose and walked. She was of the age of 12 years. Mark is trying to clarify to you that this isn't a really, really, really little infant. This is a 12-year-old and she's able to get up and immediately she's fully restored. She's walking around. It's not like she needed some time. Oh, take two weeks and uh, see if you can get back on your feet. She went from dead, she went from sick to dead to fully revived and walking around and hungry because Jesus says he commands that something should be given her to eat. Just, don't just stand there. Get her something to eat. It's interesting to me that Jesus is still concerned for this girl even after the primary problem is taken care of. She's brought back to life. It's not like, okay, let's move on. He stays there for a moment, sees her walk around, make sure that she gets something to eat. He's not just concerned that she be given life. He's concerned that she be taken care of and grown. And maybe this is a stretch, but I'll tell you what, when I was kind of meditating on this and why did Mark include this and why, is, why does this story end with the phrase, that he commanded her to be given something to eat. Think about our responsibility as we take life 
in the Word to the world that we aren't just supposed to make, get them saved and leave them. You know, they have eternal life, they have new life. Sayonara, hope you do okay. No, Jesus was concerned with her growth too. He was concerned that she'd be taken care of after this new life was given. We've been making a great focus on discipleship and the fact that we're not just called to go and get people saved from hell and then let them continue to go on living the way that they've always lived. We're called to teach them in everything that Christ commanded so that they can glorify God. Don't just give them the word of life and leave them. Lead them. Go make disciples. That was God's command, Christ's command to His church. We serve the Christ who can raise the dead. He's powerful enough to give new life to those who would believe. This Christ deserves our faith. He deserves our trust. We serve the Lord of life. Do not fear, only believe. Let's pray. Father, we're thankful for uh, this story from your word, how it shows Christ's power over death and the fact that we rely on that as Christians every single day. That his power over death is what shapes the way that we live. And his power over, the death, over death is what makes it so that we don't need to fear. Because the worst thing that could happen to us if we were to die would simply be the beginning of eternity with you. Father, thank you for the hope that we have. Thank you for the Christ that we worship. Pray in Jesus' name.